Hello and welcome. My name is Joe Frost and here with my co-host Peter Linus, this is Being Human in Lockdown. Hey, welcome everybody. Hi, how are we doing? Uh, surviving. Not sure I'm driving <laughs> just yet. I don't even know what day we're on. Is it 50 something? Uh, it's been in lockdown well, for a while. Yeah, genuinely no idea. I think that the, the key phrase at the moment is Groundhog Day. It's just the same, isn't it? Uh, yeah, it does feel that way. But we've got plans to come out. Everybody's got a different plan, depending on which part of the world you live in. <laughs> in our very <laughs> ununited kingdom at this moment. But eventually we will all get out of this. Well, here's hoping, here's hoping. But thanks to lockdown, we get an opportunity to do some extra specials, which is uh, pretty good. So our plan is to do three coronavirus um, being humans. Uh, so we're going to be looking at dignity, relationship and purpose. So Pia, tell us a bit more about our plans. Yeah, well, we might do more than three, who knows, but those are the first three for sure. Uh, we're going to look at <laughs> dignity and the value of human life and why that's important. Um, like, what has this crisis exposed about how we value and look at people? We're looking at relationships and what it's done in isolation, in lockdown. We're less able to relate than normal, significantly so. What's the impact of that? What does that tell us about ourselves uh, and the, our position within this kind of cultural story and the God story? And then the sense of purpose. So, Work has been radically redefined. I think the most recent figures are something like 7.3 million people furloughed um, and real questions being asked about coming back to work and what that looks like. Those who are still working, so many from home, it looks radically different. Uh, so our whole, and I mean, work and purpose are not the same thing, but it's a big part of our sense of purpose. So lots and lots of questions. We think there's a huge amount to discuss. Uh, so that's what we're starting with. Indeed, indeed. But give us a bit of context. So lockdown. Obviously, it's uh, always a bit different for everybody. What's your context? What's life like in lockdown at the moment? Yeah, so I'm here in Northern Ireland. I'm looking out at the sea, which is lovely. It is nice to be so in a space jealous. where you can walk on a beach and get outside. Uh, like many, homeschooling, doing the dance. My wife works as a pharmacist one day a week in the hospital, so I'm on duty again tomorrow with the kids. Um, it's remarkably calm and peaceful here. We're quite kind of rural, and so we haven't seen anywhere near the corona kind of virus spike. Um, so that gives you a particular perspective. Family are in food distribution, so they're working quite a number of them. And so they've worked throughout the whole crisis. So again, that's, you know, you've lots of different angles on this. Our local school's running, Rose is a governor, just trying to help out there to make sure key workers and vulnerable kids are able to be catered for. So yeah, it, it's surreal, a little different. Uh, missing being in London, but then nothing's happening in London. So it's kind of weird too. Yeah, so exactly. About... So I am in London <laughs> and it is, it's just very very provincial it's like oh yeah i've got neighbors and 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 we can chat to people over garden fences and it's it's very it's very strange i think the thing that we're noticing more and more is when lockdown first kicked in the streets were deathly quiet it was it was eerie um driving into central london i had to um i had an appointment in a central hospital and we thought oh it's easier to drive and genuinely the trip took 20 minutes I, di I didn't know london streets could move that fast but actually in the last week or so the traffic's kicking back up more and more people are out active i mean i genuinely don't know where they're going but um it does feel like 
um, lockdown in its intensity seems to be shifting. And what we don't know yet is the repercussions of that. So that will be very interesting. Yeah. So we don't normally, I think, say when we are, but it's mid-May. That's probably helpful for people. Just if you're listening to this a few weeks down the line, you might be going, where are they in the context of this? So that's where we are. Things are beginning to shift. Plans are coming out as to what it looks like to come out of lockdown. But in the midst of all that, we still think this has raised some really fundamental questions around the value at life of life. The kind of stay-at-home message, save lives, protect the NHS. Uh, people arguing more recently that was probably too effective. Um, the NHS is actually there to protect us, not the other way around. And, and, and to what extent then have decisions been made about who gets treated, who doesn't? How do you balance the wider societal costs with the economy, with saving lives, what's happening with domestic violence, with vulnerable kids, um, people self-harming, uh, people really struggling mentally in lockdown, and then people not getting treated for a whole range of illnesses, red flag, cancer treatments, lots of things not happening. And then how does yeah, this all unwind? It's really interesting, isn't it? I think, I mean, obviously, we've been discussing what it means to be human, who we are, how we live, um, where our dignity, our purpose, our relationships, all of those things come from. And I think one of the things that struck me most when this virus started um, was this idea that uh, what I was saying was that almost every generation needs to learn it, it for itself fundamental truths. And it seemed like the coronavirus crisis was our opportunity to learn for ourselves the fundamental sanctity of life, that no matter who you were, how old you were, how infirm you were, we as a society were prepared to put everything else on the line to save lives. And yet what we've seen is that this situation is so much more complex than that, um, that we are still having to make incredibly challenging ethical decisions on who gets care, how they get care, how they get treatment, and what we are prepared to sacrifice to what we're not. And I think that's been um, a really interesting journey. Yeah, we were pointing out, I mean, it was one of the skirmishes maybe on social media, the My Body, My Choice slogan in Northern Ireland around abortion. But more generally, that's the, the kind of slogan. Uh, so I get to do with what my body, what I like. It's a very individualist slogan. And actually, in this moment, it doesn't really make sense because the slogans have changed to stay at home, stay, save lives, whatever I and everybody does with their bodies, how we do life will actually have an impact on other people. And actually, it's a real challenge, the kind of radical individualism in our culture. We're actually being asked, sacrifice your freedoms in this moment on behalf of other people, which is yeah. actually, I think, a great conversation to be having, as you say. But, but where are the lines on that? So we've had discussions offline on this. Who gets treated? So it used to be if we went into a hospital, I'd have said, like, so I go in, my mom comes in, and we're in the same, we've, we need, we've the same needs. If anything, she probably would have got treated first back in the old days she's older uh, and arguably more vulnerable in that moment but in this moment the question was or the suggestion was i'd get treated as the younger person because she's of a certain age and will not say what um she wouldn't because if we went on to a ventilator in the COVID situation i might need to be on for four or five days on average given my age she might need to be on for 10 days uh, and they were saying well that would clog up the system so they need to keep capacity and so the whole dynamic changes uh, to people over 70 and people who had disabilities, pre-existing conditions, wouldn't be treated in the same way. That raised big questions as to the value of human life in that moment. 
Absolutely. And what we, I don't know if anyone saw, there was um, a sort of checklist, a protocol checklist that was coming out of the NHS um, that used the word frailty um, as a proxy um, for a whole load of, of um, uh, specific conditions. And it was asking questions around whether or not the patient needed additional social care or support or would be able to manage their own recovery well. And if they couldn't, then the level of intervention that the NHS would offer that person would be diminished. Raised massive questions around the value that we put on life, not just on its functionality and its usefulness. Um, and we saw lots and lots of uh, disability charities um, and carers stepping up and doctors asking the question, are you seriously asking me to uh, deprioritize life-saving treatments for this person simply because of the learning difficulties that they possess? And that was, that was deeply challenging for me to see just how utilitarian some of the, the um, checks and balances were that we were employing. And at this stage in the crisis, probably the biggest issues around care homes um, yeah. So the majority of deaths, I think, in a number of the nations uh, and right across the UK, it's certainly at the 40 to 50 percent range are in care homes. And the reality is most medics that I've been speaking to are saying, well, look, in the early stages, the agreement was not to bring people in if they were in a care home into a hospital setting, the risk of infection to keep hospitals clean and for other patients um, because they expected a huge surge. But the consequence of that was obviously then that um, more people were left in care homes with less treatment. And then we've seen this very high death rate of those uh, in, in care homes. And obviously it's age related as well. I'm not saying there's a simple response to this. 24,000 out of the 27,000 deaths uh, at the date we're doing are over 65s. So that's 88% of people. So there's an age factor in there and then there's how we treat those who are elderly. So real tensions around that, but that's not the only factor. Uh, my chances of dying COVID-19 COVID are much higher than yours, um, based yes. on it's 58% of men. Um, that seems very unfair. Uh, I'm, I'm concerned about the biases. But we've, you know, there's, there's a few other things around occupation and ethnicity um, that also raise some concerns for us. Yeah, so, I, think, I, I think the, um, the occupation stats that we've seen coming out of um, the ONS um, are deeply challenging um, around which... Uh, which jobs, essential workers um, that we are uh, encouraging to go back to work, get back to work if you can. If you can't work from home, please do, do go out, are disproportionately affecting um, blue collar jobs, working class jobs, working um, uh, and, and the risk to those people is severe. But then the other area where it's really stark is the BME communities where the stats are significantly higher and, and fundamental questions do need to be asked about the research that's going into this to make sure uh, we understand why um, ethnicity is a factor in COVID-19. We need to make sure that the research is there, that the protection is there, that the, um, the testing and the viruses and all the treatments that are being uh, looked at at the moment are targeted to make sure that the injustice... Um, that surrounds the coronavirus crisis don't carry on into treatments and into um, meeting those needs of the communities that do seem to be disproportionately affected at the moment. Yeah, so I mean, I find it fascinating. Healthcare workers, for example, doctors and nurses don't have higher death rates than the average population. Care workers do. Um, but really, uh, it's black men in particular. It's uh, security guards are the worst in terms of occupation. 
Um, uh, chauffeurs and taxi drivers and coach and bus drivers are right up there as well. Chefs, interestingly. Um, uh, those, so, and it's males in the working population almost twice as likely to die of COVID-19 than females. Um, so we've got like those range of factors, as you said, and we need to understand a bit better the causation correlation before anybody jumps to conclusions. But it does continue to raise those questions of, look, every life is valuable. That's something that we absolutely believe in. Our culture says it believes in, but then is having a real wrestle in this moment in terms of the treatment. And as you said earlier, there's a kind of utilitarian question mark going on, um, like who gets treated? Is it just a balancing of cost and benefit in this moment? Or do we have a more virtuous approach as to how it happens? And it raises real justice and kind of fairness questions around ethnicity and age. A lot of the decisions we're making in one sense, look like we're saying to old people, we don't care, stay in your care homes. But others are arguing, hold on, we've shut down the entire economy to look after the 88% over 65s who are much more likely to die. The death rate in the under 25s is 1.5 per million. So under 25s have virtually zero risk of dying of COVID-19, and yet they'll pay the taxes for the next 20 years around this. They aren't getting educated for the next six months. They're less likely coming out of union school to get into jobs in a stagnating economy. They're paying a really high price at this moment as well for all that's happening. Yeah, I think um, I think those are significant questions that we need to ask ourselves as a society. And I think one of the challenges here is is where does our dignity come from? Um, is our dignity coming from our, our social status, um, our access to, to voice and influence? Is it coming from our jobs? Um, does it come from our age? All of these things are being debated in society, but what we fundamentally believe and what we keep coming back to is the idea that actually every single human being is bestowed dignity because they bear the image of God. And that image-bearing nature is, is universal. And therefore, the dignity that we, we treat people and we make sure that we care for people and we give them the opportunities that we need as a society doesn't come from status, doesn't come from employment, doesn't come from access. It doesn't come from the color of the skin or from their place of birth. It comes because they're an image bearer, um, bearing the divine image. And that that shapes us and that should help define how we place value on life, on all life. And that seems an important part of the conversation that we need to be having today. Yeah, and it seems like we're going to be moving into, I suppose, a kind of purity culture. Um, if, you, if you want to put it that way, uh, a friend was reflecting on Matthew chapter 9. Uh, Jesus calls Matthew as a, a tax collector and uh, he's eating with the sinners and the tax collectors and the Pharisees aren't happy. And he talks about the new wineskins. Uh, but then uh, Jairus, the temple ruler, comes, says, come and, can you come and heal my daughter? And on his way, this woman touches his cloak. And, uh, you know, Jesus turns and says to her, uh, you know, daughter, uh, your faith has made you well and heals her. But if you're Jairus in that moment, we kind of miss this. He's been made unclean by this woman. And uh, we are entering this new purity culture where the question is, have you washed your hands? Where's your face mask if you're on public transport? Please stay back two meters. I was talking to somebody the other night out on a walk and I realized that they were sort of just moving to the side because I just stepped in closer just as you used to do. But anyway, you know, and in Jewish culture to touch a dead person or to touch a sick person with the two things that made you unclean. And in this little passage of Matthew, Jesus does both as he raises Jairus' daughter. He goes in and touches the dead person and takes her hand and brings her up. Um, but also this woman touches his garment and makes him unclean. And, and their thinking was, 
they've contaminated you. The dead and the sick have contaminated you, Jesus. And Jesus says, no, 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 I'm flipping it. I'm, I'm bringing this new wineskin. My holiness, my purity covers them in this moment. I'm bringing healing to their brokenness. And all of that, I think we're moving into a culture that's going to be really edgy around kind of boundaries and purity and cleanliness. And it's going to be a real challenge for us as Christians as to how we say, rather than just wanting to cut ourselves off, I really feel God is, there's a message of holiness in this season, but that's not the pure separation and cutting off. But how do we bring healing and bring wholeness to others and kind of flip the current desire to step back? Now, that's not a reckless thing. Uh, I'm not saying don't wear a mask. I'm not saying don't. But I am saying we're going to have to try and transcend some of that because there's a deep anxiousness and unease. And there's a real sense of I can protect myself if I just wash my hands and stay away and, and stay separated off. And we're going to have to navigate that in really interesting yeah. and awkward ways going forward, I think. And I, th I think personally in my world, the place that I see that most starkly, the debate that we're having at the moment is, is how and when do we send our kids back to school? Um, so obviously in England, um, the plan at the moment is that um, schools will open for uh, reception year one and year six. Now my child, my daughter is in year one. So the WhatsApp group is going mental at the moment with all the mums trying to work out what they should do with their precious, precious children. And how do they navigate work? How do they navigate homeschooling? How do they make sure that their child isn't the one in a million? Because there has to be a one, even if there is a million. And are they being reckless? Are they being... Um, uh, flippant in this time and how do you be a non-anxious presence how do you uh, encourage and affirm it's a really interesting conversation to navigate in this space where legitimate concerns plus anxiety plus uncertainty all mixed together in this desperate attempt to control to protect and to keep safe um it's really really interesting well, and the one in a million takes us, so we, we need to keep this one moving because we could go on on tangents on this, I'm sure, all day long. <laughs> but it does take the one in a million takes us to death. That is a reality of this moment as well. Mm. We have never been faced for such a long period with headlines about death. I mean, that basically leads the papers for, for the first five or six weeks. It felt like every day was what's the death toll? Is it heading the right direction? And we almost got so obsessed with the direction of travel, you miss the deaths each time. But we aren't that used as a culture to talking well about death. Um, I mean, I was reflecting, my own dad passed away in November last year and there were three months where he was pretty sick and we didn't know what it was. He thought we thought he'd had a stroke, but it was a brain tumor. And, and so we had to be kept, we got him home, and, but we had to be kept away from people. And we were, we were laughing at how he'd navigate this. He was pretty reckless. He'd be wanting out every day. But the point was in this moment, we couldn't have visited him or we couldn't have visited anybody else because he's vulnerable. And so many people are related to those who are vulnerable. And we have to wrestle like with what is, with human finitude with death, with the reality, he was going to die. And he would have said, let's go out, guys. Let's crack on. We're going to die. But so there's there's that for those who are vulnerable. And we have to wrestle with some of that, the people in care homes who are in their 80s and 90s. And what's the quality of life that people have in this moment and how much can we protect them? As well as the fact that some will die very tragically. And and the funerals, I mean, we, we rang all of our members and talking to people who are leading funerals in this moment, five people could come along uh, they couldn't speak to them often beforehand. They would meet them at the graveside. They had 15 minutes to bury the person. The funeral had to happen within 24 hours of the death. They were, the minister was five meters back from the graveside. The next family member was five meters back from them. 
hugely surreal and no real space to grieve in the normal way, to have the wake, to have the gathering, to have the space to tell stories with others. So there's this pent up lack of grief that has been able to be displayed across our nation in this moment. And we're going to have real yeah. issues around that. I think we are. I think one thing that this crisis has um, clearly shown us is that we aren't individuals. We are communities. We are collective. We are uh, families. We are relational beings. And when we can't relate to each other, especially in times of grief and of suffering and of hardship, that's deeply, deeply traumatic. Um, and it's very wounding. And what we don't know is the implications of that. But what we have seen is the fact that we have ignored death as a society and as a culture for an awfully long time. Uh, we shove it to the sides, we keep it hidden, we don't talk about it, we ignore it. And yet, um, death has been brought front and centre to us. We're having, I don't know about you, but I'm having more conversations about life and death and the meaning um, People want to pray. People are asking deep questions. The Tear Fund survey that came out recently saying that people are engaging with um, church and religious services online. One in four people are now praying when they have never prayed before. Actually, we are finite beings um, and our life is short. It is vapor. Um, and yet the Christian story of eternal hope carries a message in it that our society right now desperately needs as we work out how to navigate these life and death challenges. It is, and so we absolutely want to focus on the hope and give the space so for the lament and grieving, and I think that's the other wonderful thing about the story. It doesn't shy away from, it's not just this simple, hey, life is wonderful gospel story. It's like Jesus went through death and so understands the pain of going through that, what it is to lament his friend Lazarus who had died, what it is to, to, to encounter death in that way. And so we're not trying to say, look, there's some simple, trite answer to what's going on. This is very real for people, but there's a space to cry out to God and say, why and what's happening and to plead with him. We're seeing uh, doctors and nurses and others, because chaplains can't be in hospitals. So who is with people when they die? And people saying, there's nobody there and that's awful. And, and, and I do want to see ways in which chaplains can get into hospitals, but actually the doctors and the nurses are sitting with those who are dying and are with them in the end and praying with them and ministering to them. And so we're seeing the scattered servants, the Christians in particular who are in those spaces, being there for people in ways that they probably wouldn't have been previously, because that would have almost been, well, we'll just call the priest or we'll call the minister now to come in. And they're there for them in those last moments, trying to, to, st to sit with them in those really awkward spaces at the boundaries of life and death. Yeah, I think, I think what we are seeing with this crisis, therefore, is um, we can't get away with that half and quarter story that we've talked about before, um, where we shrink the good news of the gospel to... Um, to sin and forgiveness or to uh, you're fine, Jesus loves you, crack on. Actually, the fullness of the story, that there is pain, there is suffering, there is questioning, there is um, difficulty and challenge, and yet, and yet God is with us, and yet God sits in the dust, and yet God does not abandon you. You are never alone. You are never forsaken. He loves you. He will rescue you. He will bring you into his presence and into his family. That full story is being shared across garden fences, in uh, checkout queues, um, through churches and prayer meetings online. That story, the fullness of the Christian story, is what is gaining traction right now because it's truth 
And if there's one thing we need right now, it's some truth and it's some hope and it's a glorious thing. Yeah, there's these, the, the really strange occurrence, if you like, of Thursday nights, eight o'clock outside and we're clapping the NHS. And it's a moment where we gather together uh, and, and embrace, in a sense, a, a story around the NHS and what it's doing. Now, I know there's a number of different angles on that. I speak to some medics who are almost slightly embarrassed because for a variety of reasons, they're just not able to work and do what they normally do. Um, and there are concerns that we're almost worshipping the NHS on one side. I think people find the 2012 Olympics is interesting because the NHS is like the creed, protect the NHS, but actually it does these incredible things. And we do want to honour the doctors and nurses and the delivery drivers and others who are on the front line. So we've got this balancing act to do. But in that moment when we're out there, there's this really interesting space to connect with neighbours and engage and dialogue about what's happening. Yeah, I've, I've found that whole thing fascinating. So um, I wasn't very well, found myself in A&E, London Hospital, um, chatting to an A&E doctor. And he, like you said, was genuinely embarrassed. He was like, we're fine at the moment. It was it was crazy a couple of weeks ago and very difficult and very challenging. And the clapping and the cakes were great, but people are still clapping and we're still getting cakes. And I feel really awkward about it because I don't feel like we deserve it. We're just doing our jobs. But then my uh, friend of mine was out on the streets clapping. Uh, he lives on my estate. And where I live, um, there's quite a lot of supported housing. Um, quite a lot of people with disabilities live on, on where I live. Um, and he was chatting to a neighbour who he often chats to at a social distance. Um, and she was clapping her heart out. And then she, he found out that her husband had died that Tuesday from COVID-19. And she was clapping and cheering for the NHS that had provided the care and the support for her husband in those last moments. And what I'm noticing is the clapping is diminishing. Actually, less and less people on my streets are going out. Maybe I just don't have a very community-minded street. But the ones that are there, the ones that are loudest, are the ones whose loved ones are vulnerable, are sick, are long-term needing care. Because this is their moment to say thank you. Thank you for caring for our loved ones. And actually, as a society, our ability to honour, our ability to thank and encourage and support is something that we don't have many rituals for. And this clapping moment is an opportunity for us as a society to honour and encourage um, a group of people who we feel thankful for. I suppose the challenge is, why does that group get singled out when there are so many people serving and making our lives possible at the moment, delivery drivers, checkout people, um, the bin men, um, all of those people are the ones that we need to be saying thank you, encouraging, lifting up, being that non-anxious presence, offering a different story to. Um, how we respond to individuals and corporately is a big challenge. Yeah, and I think we've all got to take responsibility for that, haven't we? Like, so it's, you know, we've been ringing churches and asking what they're doing and how are they supporting workers on the front line? And I think it's really important we're ringing those um, who are in the NHS, yes, but in other sectors that are back working, businesses that are going to the wall are really struggling, those in the charitable sector, those in our churches, our ministers and others who are maxed out trying to navigate this situation. But it's easy to say, well, what are you doing as a church? But I mean, we need to be ringing the people that we know who are struggling in this situation. Uh, lots of people with WhatsApp groups and, and various Zoom conversations popping up because people are really struggling. This is this is exceedingly difficult time to navigate um, for people who are furloughed, for people who aren't working or people who are working but are under incredible pressure. There's tensions beginning to rise between 
public and private, older and younger. And so this non-anxious presence theme, again, we've talked about before, is going to become really important. As we go through the crisis bit, we move now to the kind of analysis and, and something of the blame begins to come up. And it gets toxic out there really quickly because people have lots of time. They're sitting at their keyboards, they're in their home offices or they're furloughed. And in one sense, the only thing they can do is get on a keyboard and try and respond in some way. And it's often not helpful. And we're going to have to be wise in terms of how we navigate some of that, possibly stepping away. Because the thing we'll probably pick up on is, is the Sabbath thing. And we don't want to do it all here. But like we do need to step back from some of this stuff and find a way to be non-anxious and be more local and connected. Um, I found really interesting. We uh, At the EA, we've been doing these things on, on Facebook and on YouTube called the Coronavirus Conversations. And one of our recent ones was with Pastor Celia. And she was talking about the preparedness of this time for the church. What are we what are we preparing for? Where is our focus? What are we establishing now in terms of um, not being anxious, in terms of seeding hope, in terms of uh, being where the need is? Um, the line she kept using is that leaders don't get titles, they get towels. You go to where the mess is and you get busy cleaning up. And I think that's the key to this non-anxious presence. It isn't about getting involved in the blame game. It isn't about pointing the finger about what what has got us here. Yes, we need to look to what has got us here in order to get us out, in order to prepare and to change. But the blame game probably isn't for now. Actually, what the, what is needed now is to look forward and to prepare in this moment. What is the church going to do? Who is the church going to be as we move forward, as we step out? How are we going to build a society as a kingdom of God society, how are we going to bestow dignity and honor on individuals? Um, because you can't be worried when you're doing that because you're too busy. <laughs> totally. And I think we want to absolutely emphasize, emphasize, sorry, and say, look, the church is doing amazing things in this moment. So you were yeah. saying earlier about people praying, people checking in online. I think it's 5% of people checked in online who'd never been before. It's more 18 to 24 year olds. It's more men. So two groups the church has historically struggled to reach. Um, we know there's going to be a funding gap going forward. The, the uh, NCBO has said, look, it's four billion in the first three months. They expect a shortfall in in the kind of charitable sector of which the church is a part. But the church's volunteer base and its funding base is probably more reliable than most. It relies less on government funding. And as we come out of this, in all likelihood, there's just going to be less money about, and the church is going to be even better positioned, if you like, to stand in that gap between those who are struggling in the inevitable recession and economic crisis that kind of follows. With this ongoing, until we find a virus, what can you do? Who can work? Who can do what? So we're already doing stuff. We're doing the food banks, doing the money, doing the connecting with people, going and getting the medicines. But I also think there's going to be an incredible opportunity because there is a spiritual hunger. There's a sense, uh, you know, to get philosophical, to get theological, the secular story, the individual story, the consumer story isn't landing at this moment. Capitalism isn't working. We've just nationalized half our economy. Secularism doesn't have an answer. It just says, well, well you know, survival of the fittest, let's get rid of the most vulnerable. And be, oh, that doesn't work. We don't want to honor that story. So what is the story? Indi radical individualism doesn't work. We're all sitting at home going, I don't want to be an individual. Please let me go meet somebody. <laughs> let me get out. Even me, the Enneagram 5, wants to hug somebody. Come on, let me out. So all those stories are failing and we want to turn. And so the church has a huge role to play and we absolutely want to champion that. It's part of what we do as an organization. Uh, but you, our listeners, are members of the church. And so the WhatsApp group that just runs in the street is, is a classic response in this moment to connect through to what the larger, more organized church is going to do. 
Um, and there isn't a huge desire in what we're hearing to to gather and to meet and do all you know open up churches for private prayer necessarily. That's fine. That's grand. The church is not shut. That's the big message we keep saying and we keep hearing from our members. The church is not closed. It is open. The physical building is not, but that has never been the heart. Don't want that to be the heart. We need to, as you say, and as Reverend Celia was saying, reset going forward. We're more missional. We're more out there. We're more engaged in the world around us. It's less about the gathered platform, program, big stage presence. Amazing. It's it's in, in a really weird challenging painful way this is an amazing opportunity and i think one of the things that has um has challenged me in this moment is um is not allowing myself to get caught up in um the the frantic conversations and the breaking news headlines and the what ifs and the maybes and the if onlys at this moment more than anything, I want to make sure that my time in lockdown was the time that I spent with Jesus, that I invested in my prayers, I invested in the word, that I got to know his voice even more clearly than ever before. When everything else is shut down and when everything else is locked out, how do I listen to what God is saying? Because this virus has not come as a surprise to God. It is, it is not unexpected, and he does know how we're going to get out of this. So I just need to put my trust in him and have the perspective that says, I'm going to follow him where he leads me. I'm not going to sit in a hole. I'm not going to pull the blanket over my head um, and say, woe is me. This is too hard. This is too tricky. I am going to lay down all my struggles, all my burdens, all my uncertainties at his feet because he can carry them because he knows where he's going. So I'm going to follow him. And I think that's um, a really good thing to focus on for me yeah. during this lockdown. Well, so as we land this and we just literally bring this in home, I mean, we've, we've talked about dignity. We've talked about the value of human life. And I suspect there's going to be inquiries galore. I mean, as somebody who's been involved knows in my previous life as a lawyer, I'm a bit skeptical. I think only lawyers <laughs> seem to benefit um, because there'll be a whole argument about where should we place value and who's valuable and dot, dot, dot. And we're saying, well, on what are you basing that? We already have a story that says every single person is made in the image of God. We want to declare that this is a moment to get out on the front foot and say, yes, you do have value. You do have dignity, but we are declaring that over you rather than arguing about who has it and who should have more and who should have less. And we are mm -hmm. absolutely a community. It says we want to sacrifice ourselves on behalf of the other. And it's really interesting to see society having those kind of conversations as well. And there'll probably be more about tracking apps and about masks and what all of that means to our dignity and conversations. But we absolutely think this is a great place to be having the conversation. This pandemic has forced these things right up onto the surface. So next time, I think we're going to be looking at relationships. We are relational beings. We are wired for that, made in the image of relational God. We're living in a radically individualistic culture that is now asking huge questions about that story. And when it's been taken to its kind of logical conclusions of a lockdown and a life literally on your own. So we're going to explore that next time, especially as the lockdown unfolds and freedom and how those things all interplay. Um, so I think that's it from you and me this time. I think so too. I hope you have enjoyed this um, special edition. Um, do you follow us on uh, Twitter, on Facebook, every now and then on Instagram. Um, you can email us at beinghuman 
at eauk.org. Um, you can find out more about the Evangelical Alliance and even how to become a member, should you so wish, at eauk.org. Um, we have so much more in store, so please do uh, get in touch, um, give us some ideas about th some of the things you'd like us to look at or discuss, and share with us your comments and your feedback, as long as it's good. Um, but until then, uh, know that we're praying for you, know that we're cheering you on, um, and be blessed. Be blessed. <laughs>